and welcome to episode 9 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Michael Silverman. Michael is a longtime Red Sox beat writer for the Boston Herald. He's also a voter for the Hall of Fame. You can give Michael a follow on Twitter at MikeSilvermanBB. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. You're welcome, Ross. I'm excited. Well, let's start at the beginning, I guess. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Well, I grew up in Kansas City uh, in, the Kansas, in the heyday of the Kansas City Royals. And, um, you know, that actually was their last heyday. But um, I grew up in the time of George Brett and uh, easily became a fan of the team then and uh, maintained it the whole time. And, you know, I didn't get into journalism in order to become a baseball writer, but when the opportunity uh, was presented to me at the Boston Herald in the middle of the 1995 season, you know, Michael, do you want to cover the Red Sox? I was like, of course I do. And, um, and that's what I've been doing ever since. So why did you get into journalism? I love to write. And I think I was uh, going to become either a lawyer or some kind of a writer. And once I took my LSATs, I quickly realized law is not for me. And uh, I, I went into the publishing end and, you know, through a few odd jobs here and there. I went to graduate school in journalism as well. Um, you know, I kind of backed my way into newspapers and then backed my way into the sports section. It wasn't by design, but it worked out that way. So I was able, you know, I've been a baseball fan all my life and, uh, to be able to write about it is, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I think baseball is the, the best sport to cover. Um, just so much, you know, you, you can do and you can take it any way you want. You can be nuts and bolts. You can... There's always room for the flowery, poetic type of writers, and there's lots of numbers to digest, and, you know, you can go anywhere you want with it. It's got a great history, and, um, you know, it's a fun world to be around. You started covering baseball in 1995. That was sort of the middle is, I guess, what is now defined as the steroid era. Before we get into some Hall of Fame talk, how do you think the steroid situation was handled and covered by the baseball writers when it was happening? Well, you know, I've had to ask myself that too. So when I first started, obviously I'm, I'm hadn't covered a, a major, you know, any kind of a professional beat before. So, you know, I, I come in and oh, this is what the, a major league baseball player looks like. Man, they're built, and they're big, and you know, it, it didn't seem to me. You know, this is all under my nose, and it's not as if guys had needles lying around on their chairs or anything like that. Um, I think as a whole, obviously, I was missed it, or I missed it, or and or was oblivious to it. I'll tell you, I was never willingly oblivious, but it just seemed to me that um, as stories started to develop, you know, it's, it's a funny thing, the balance of... Uh, cultivating sources and, you know, are you, are you going to be the, you know, is your paper have an, an agenda to um, get to the bottom of a steroid story? I don't think any paper in the country really did or really cared. I think eyebrows were raised, but there weren't a lot of reporters who were um, going after baseball at the time. Um, towards the end of it, yes, it started to grow and grow until finally it became a very big deal. So, I think early on, to answer your question of us, um, you know, we, baseball writers didn't do a great job at all um, in the thick of it, in the midst of it, and why that is, I'm not exactly sure. 
when did the suspicions or when did did you find that the collective press box started talking about PED use? I don't think it was as early as 95. Do you think it would happen during the 98 season? Yeah, around the late 90s. Definitely by then. What year did Greg Vaughn go off? Um, Didn't he hit level 50, I think? I mean, that was, I think around by that time, after that season, that's when everyone was like, oh boy, here we go. But, you know, strangely enough, it wasn't, I just don't remember at the time. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, or if some listener out there hears it and says, well, no, Journalist X did, there are a lot of stories written about it, but I don't really remember them. And it wasn't until the AP writer, and unfortunately I forget his name, pointed out the bottle of... Um, Andrew. Right, Andrew in um, Mark McGuire's locker. I think that was the first time it kind of came to the forefront. Well, it's interesting, and this is part of how much media has changed just since 1995 with the Internet and everything has exploded and everything is so instantaneous now and everything blows up. Big stories blow up, but even stories that are non-stories blow up too. Uh, There was a a story in the San Diego Tribune, I believe in 1995, where Tony Gwynn and Frank Thomas mentioned that PEDs were becoming a problem in baseball, and Mm -hmm. it got no traction. Think about that today. Think about having two Hall of Fame caliber players saying that drugs are a problem in any sport. Imagine any two superstars doing that in any sport. It would be national news. Brian Williams would be talking about it on NBC. That two players of that caliber could say something and go completely unnoticed by, by media and by the game itself is kind of like, how does that happen? A great question. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> you do this long enough, you think, well, I haven't changed that much or... The media hasn't changed that much, but it has completely. And I don't know if it's because of the Internet or because of Twitter or, or blogging. I, I just think that once the – I mean, I, maybe back in 95, I do not remember that. Um, the records, you know, like the home run totals, we didn't have Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire yet. I mean, there were starting to be some inflated numbers, but it hadn't reached its heyday yet. So it was like, well, yeah, but prove it. And – but no one, no one, I guess, followed up on it. So shame on the writers for that, all of us. How much do you think PEDs actually increase performance? Oh, well, a lot. I mean, to a significant degree. And if not performance, then durability and recovering from injuries, which in turn relates to performance. So the, the definition of the word performance is, uh, you know, it can include a lot of factors, not just, um, you know, increased numbers. And we always talk about the offensive guys, but we, it's funny how, you know, it's maybe harder to measure or quantify um, pitchers, although I think it relates more to durability. But Ethically, do you see a difference between the players of the 90s and early 2000s who used steroids and other PEDs to the players in the 40s, 50s, and 60s who were using amphetamines and greenies? No, I don't see a huge difference because I think performance-enhancing drugs have been around forever, even before the 40s and 50s. Um, um, you know, there's been documented cases of old turn-of-the-century baseball players injecting themselves with testosterone in an effort to uh, to improve their their performance. And it's nothing unusual. I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying that athletes have been trying to gain an edge for a long, long time, and um, that's just that's just part of the world. And you know, it's is it great? Is it admirable? No, not really. Um, but you know, I, to me, it doesn't shock me or surprise me. And they're all—I would throw them under the the same rug. 
you are in the minority there with your with your writers and the, and the voters on, on the Hall of Fame, as there have been many all-time great players who played Mickey Mantle, who have li- been linked to amphetamine use in the 50s and in the 60s, no one's calling them for be, to be removed for the Hall of Fame. Right. I mean, to me, I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, that's why, that's that's the slippery slope you get on as, as a voter into why you don't want to... Uh, start to act as judge and jury on the current crop of players that are emerging, that are coming onto the ballot from the steroids era. Because in my mind, it's the Hall of Fame. And if you're going to, you know, apply a moral standard to current crops, but you're, you're fine or you, you say, oh, it's not my problem who got in before, then I think you're ignoring history. And you're, you're, it's a selective use of morality that bugs me a lot. And I, I look at the Hall of Fame as there are plenty of miscreants and um, bad guys, not just PED users. Horrible people. Racist. Ty Cobb it was a it was a. I don't. I don't know if I have the right adjectives. Reprehensible, detestable human being. You know, racist of the worst color. But you know that that doesn't seem to bother people. And in a way, I, I guess I would probably. I would have to vote for Ty Cobb, my, you know, myself, no matter how much I abhor what he did or how he felt. And so, you know, that's just one argument, I guess, to my open-mindedness about, um, you know, electing uh, PED users. Well, let's get uh, into that specifically. 2013, of course, obviously marks the first year that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens will appear on the ballot. There are several other players who have been directly linked or widely suspected of using PEDs on the ballot as well. Many of them had Hall of Fame caliber careers. What's your view on PEDs in the Hall? I've, you know, I started voting in uh, seven years ago, and I happened to be the first year that Mark McGuire was on the ballot. So I had kind of make my peace with this. I, I always wanted to be consistent. I strive for consistency with, when it comes to why and how I vote for the Hall of Fame. I gave it a lot of thought. And, I, and um, so far, and I'm always reserved the right to change my mind, I guess. But when it came to McGuire, who I think is actually a good debate whether he's Hall of Fame worthy or not, but in my mind he was. He wasn't one-dimensional. I was just, I, w- I was not willing to throw out, and I saw the upcoming ballots coming ahead in the horizon, and I realized there'd be other choices to make as well, but I just wasn't willing to sweep everyone under the rug and declare everyone guilty or assess suspicious. Um, and I didn't know how many times Mark McGuire, you know, faced a pitcher who was using PEDs as well. Um, that, that's a weak argument, but that's just one of like 10 I could come up with as to why um, I'm willing to, I guess, overlook PED use or accept it or go by it, move by it. And the only thing that's makes, that says on the ballot why I should consider it is the character clause. But I'm not going to, you know, I, it doesn't say how much you should weigh character of a player when you determine your vote. I choose when it comes to PED use and how that relates to the character clause, I choose to weigh it pretty low. So um, that's how I look at, um, you know, suspected or proven PED users and how I approach them. So it's kind of more of a, you know, because I'm not willing to write off an entire generation, I'm going to try to keep it to just the stats and their impact on the game. How do you think the Hall has handled the issue? I think so far... um, 
very well. I mean, I know each year I think they have to confront it more and more. And I know this year, Jeff Idelson, who's the president of the Hall of Fame and a very level-headed, fair-minded guy, I think, um, you know, put out a Q&A on the website, which I think everyone should go to and read through. I mean, they're very much in the um, education mode, and they want to alert Hall of Fame visitors, whether they go to Cooperstown or go to their website, about this is what happened, and this is why the numbers, you know, this is the steroids there. They don't hide from it. And, um, you know, there's a Q&A which says, like, has, a, has anyone ever had their Hall of Fame plaque, you know, taken out of the hall? And, you know, the answer is no. And that's never presented itself, and it never has happened. There's no precedent for that. And it's actually only happened once in the four major team sports, basketball, football, baseball, hockey. It only happened in hockey with the um, corrupt agent whose name is escaping me that screwed over Bobby Orr. The players protested and he was removed, but that's the only time uh, someone has ever been removed from any of the major Hall of Fames. No player has ever been removed. Yeah. Well, Include, including O.J. Simpson. Good. I think that's fine. You know, every vote is a reflection of that moment in time and how the voters felt about it. And... Um, you know, whether they get it wrong or whether they elect a, a bad person, a PED user or a suspected murderer or a racist, um, you know, we, it's an imperfect society and the Hall of Fame is not perfect just like society is and there's elections you don't agree with the outcome and unless you move to Canada, you, you live with it. And this is uh, election to Hall of Fame. It's not really a pure democracy, but it's a system we have now, and every vote reflects the uh, current state of mind of the voters. And like you said, I, my, my personal outlook on all this is in the minority for now. I think the writers are making a mistake by keeping these guys out. I think in the end, it's bad for baseball. It's bad for baseball that baseball as a whole is trying to move on from steroids and the steroid era, but they can't because many of the best players of a generation are now being talked about with only using steroids. And this, this is going to be the case for another 20 years, and even longer when you think about how long A-Rod still has left on his contract and when A-Rod's got five years after he plays and then he's going to be on the ballot forever as well. There's no resolution in sight, but one of the things that bothers me is that too much is being based on the unknown. Look, we, we really have no idea how much steroids increased Mark McGuire's performance. We have no idea how many home runs he would have hit without them. To me, steroid use is part of McGuire's legacy, but it's not all of his legacy. I can look at McGuire and say he is one of the best power hitters of all time, and he used steroids, as both are true. Right. I, I'd rather see a system where the Hall acknowledges both. Let's put him in because he is a deserving Hall of Famer. He had a Hall of Fame caliber career, but let's also acknowledge that he used and let's move on. I agree. And here's another argument that supports, you know, your frame of mind and my mind as well. Um, like how much PED use was, was the case with Mark McGuire or other, let's say Jeff Bagwell, who, who's only been suspected of it and never at all really associated with it. Um, did, did Bagwell use it once in his career? Did he use it um, once a year? Or McGuire, did he use it two times a year? Did he maybe use it? I don't know if he detailed in that interview how often he used it or frequently. Or, I mean, what is the acceptable usage? Is it like Andy Pettit, I think, said he only used it two or three times just to recover from injury. What is it in the voters' mind that is a, is it a complete zero 
tolerance for use. Well, that's what it is. Are we willing to, you know, grant a player, no matter how great or how insignificant, um, some tolerance, some, you know, look, okay, you made a mistake, and I'm okay with you making that mistake because you only used it once, but because player X is a great player, used it four times. That's three times too many for me, but one is okay. And maybe two, but, you know, again, how do you get, how do, it's such a gray area, and it's so subjective and, in my mind, hypocritical to, to put a number for it. I mean, in a way, I have some respect for guys who, voters who just have zero tolerance for it. Um, but those who, who, you know, make some kind of rationalization, to me, is missing the point. Yeah, and it's like marijuana. There's a big difference between someone who smokes weed every single day and all they want to do is smoke marijuana versus the guy that's like, eh, it's not really his thing, but uh, maybe, you know, three times a year he smokes weed. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between those two people, but I think how the writers are handling it, it's just sort of if you've used, you've used, and they're all thrown into the same pile. And HGH is thrown into the same pile as steroids, which I think is unfair as well. It's just all sort of if you've been linked or suspected – whether you've used once, tried it once and didn't like it, or you used for eight years steady, you are in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, this is going to keep coming up because if anyone is fooling themselves into thinking that players currently are still not using PDs, I mean, hello, you know, get your head out of the sand because I'm pretty confident that it's, you know, it's still going on. And there, I do believe that players and their enablers will always try to stay a step ahead of the testers. That's, that's, and they'll continue to lie. And they're, you know, there's a ton of people walking around now with a lot of secrets. And um, it's fascinating to me that, that there's so many secrets in the game still and so many secret keepers. Well, I think we're finding out this offseason that Adderall is becoming a very big problem in baseball. Well, let's be honest, Ross. I mean, it's, it's really attention deficit disorders that just is plaguing Major League Baseball players, it's... Uh, yes, 9% legitimately have a prescription, apparently. I know, I know. It's, it's amazing. So, yeah. But that, that's a pure... That's a stimulant, right? I mean, that's why, why players use it. It helps them zero in and focus. I mean, they find it more effective or, you know, than pots and pots of uh, strong coffee. Maybe it just, you know, makes, makes them pee less. I don't know, but it just... You know, that, that's the uh, stimulant of choice these days, if you can get a doctor's prescription. Well, let's get into your ballot this year for uh, 2013. Let's talk about some of the players who are first appearing on it, who you plan to vote for, and why. Let's start with the two big names right at the top. Let's start with Roger Clemens. Do you plan to vote for him? Yes, I do. Michael, you mean to tell me you plan to vote for one of the best pitchers of all time? Well, I know it's controversial, and but I'm I'm willing to stick my nose into it, yes. I mean, I mean, it's to me, it's like mind-boggling that there would be a discussion about it. But whatever. There comes a point where, how much do you think steroids helped Roger Clemens? Roger Clemens is essentially three Hall of Famers. I mean, knock him down two tiers, he's still in the Hall of Fame. Exactly. It's you know, as, so for anyone not to vote for him is either trying to make a point, uh, or there are some people who still insist on this: no one's worthy of a first year. You know vote, which in my mind is... That's embarrassing. I, I, I hate that, that mindset, but some people do still have it. So, um, yeah, yeah, Roger Clemens. 
You do vote for Clemens. I imagine the same thing is true with Barry Bonds as well. You would vote for Barry Bonds. Yeah. Again, one of the best players of all time actually getting into the Hall of Fame would be uh, shocking in this case. I don't think either one is getting in. I don't think they either will get over 50% of the vote. Yeah, that's that's too bad. You're right. I don't think it's going to necessarily happen the first year. Um, And where that goes is, I mean, they are the ultimate litmus test as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I don't know, it kind of gets... You wonder if, if the changing electorate will will change quickly enough. Um, you know, it's kind of it reminds me a little bit of the Trout Cabrera debate for MVP because the younger so-called younger voters were more you know war oriented and probably voted for Trout and some older ones did for Cabrera. But I mean, I think you could still make a good case for Cabrera, but it's not quite the same. Um, anyway, been off track. Yeah, there are younger voters coming in, but there's still not that many, and there's still most of them aren't voting yet. One of my problems with the Hall of Fame admission process is that there's no, no one's ever removed from voting. People are only added. So even if there are 20 new new school people who are voting now, that's not going to be enough to sway the 575 voters. Yeah, well, you know, death is the uh, only removal process. It's like a Supreme Court judge. <laughs> right. That is the only way to get off the rolls. Don't vote for Mike Schmidt. Don't vote for Cal Ripken. They don't care. Vote for Vinny Castillo. Vote for Tony Womack. They don't care. There's no accountability with the voters. I actually think that's one of the problems with the process. Yeah. I mean, I think every voter's vote should be uh, public. And, um, you know, there are a lot of retired baseball reporters who still vote. And, you know, think of the mindset of your, of your, you know, great uncles and grandparents and it's easy. I mean, I, I'm not like, I don't want to cast stones. I mean, that's the way they feel. You know, it's not surprising. We all have the older generation is usually, you know, they have, they're stuck in the ways. How do you change the habits of your grandmother or, or great aunt and great uncle, how they go about their day? And, you know, you're not going to change their minds. So, but th- there's a dwindling number of, of those types of voters. When I think about who my father or grandparents would vote for in politics, that, that bothers me a lot more than who they would vote for in the Hall of Fame. So, But you have to consider it's that same mentality of, uh, of what they're voting for there. So I don't think we need to get into the statistics with Bonds or Clemens too much. If you look at their numbers, they are obvious Hall of Famers. There is no question about that. They are among the best players to ever play the game. And every number, conventional and advanced, points you right in that direction. There is no number that either one of those guys does not not only meet, but exceed to the wildest degrees of Hall of Fame standards. They won't get in, though. I I don't think they will. I I think that Clemens will probably come in around 45% and Bonds will come in around 40. I hope it's higher, but uh, you may be right. Sammy Sosa. You know, I, that's the, to me, that's a tough one, even though his numbers are so awesome and he has that MVP to his credit, which, you know, I, I do factor in things, you know, how, how they dominated the game. You know, he was, uh, I got to really take a long, hard look. I, I'm, I don't know if by the end of this podcast I'll have made up my mind, but I know his, his, his numbers are great, and um, I just don't know if I considered him a great player who – yeah, he struck fear in the hearts and minds of pitchers for a few years there. But um, I wonder, I really do, whether, uh, you know, he, he was just such a great player. He was not a great all-around player, not a great defensive outfielder. Not, he didn't do anything else really well. So um, I don't know. I'm going to have a tough time with that. We're, we're, I'm curious. I'm, I'm listening to all uh, – opinions on on the guy where do you stand Ross? 
I would vote him in, but I think you can make a case that he is borderline, even with his PED use. Here are some notes about Sosa. He obviously finished with 609 career home runs. From 1998 to 2002, he hit 292 home runs. <laughs> I mean, that is ridiculous. Right. However, his career war is 54.8. His OPS plus is 128. His on-base percentage is 344. Those are three very important numbers, and they fall below the Hall of Fame averages at right field. That would be 344. 344. The Hall of Fame average at right field is 382. His OPS plus is 128. The Hall of Fame average at right field is 136. And his wins above replacement is 54.8. The Hall of Fame average is 66.8. So he does. For or just anyone? For right fielders. For right fielders, uh huh. So specifically towards his position, he falls short. Even with steroid use, you can make a reasonable case that he is not deserving. Now, there are other numbers that suggest that he is deserving. To me, he's a borderline guy, and I just look at it like, look, if I'm willing to vote someone in, I'm not looking at PEDs or how much they may or may not have helped them, because I don't know. I have no idea how many home runs he would have hit had he never used steroids, especially with him, because it seems to have happened in the middle of his career. We have no idea. I'm just willing to say he had a Hall of Fame career, even though he's much more borderline than his traditional numbers would suggest. I'm willing to put him in, and I'm not looking at the steroid issue with him at all. Yeah, even if I ignore, I mean, I, I got to kind of weigh him against uh, Mark McGuire, who I have voted for consistently. Um, Mark McGuire, his OBP, I believe, is quite high, besides the home run totals. I think I'd rather have Mark McGuire at his peak than Sammy Sosa. See yeah, McGuire, com- McGuire, I think, is top 20 all-time in slugging percentage. McGuire was an elite hitter for a period of time, and, and Sosa has the home run total, the 292 in five years. I mean, that is uh, out of control. But beyond that, the percentages and the rate stats aren't really there in Sosa's favor. Yeah, yeah. so right now I guess I'm, I'm, I think I'm leaning against Sosa, but I got, I got a few weeks. I would vote for Sosa. I do think he's deserving, but he would not be one of my 10. Um, the Hall of Fame allows you to vote for 10 guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would vote for 14 guys this year, and Sosa wow. may be 14th on my list. Wow, okay. Let's move on to Mike Piazza. Yeah, I think uh, he's going to get my vote. Um, no, it's not like, oh, my God, of course. But, yeah, it doesn't take too long of looking at his numbers to, to see where he stacks up against other catchers. And um, not great defensively, but I think pretty much is in the conversation, obviously, about the greatest offensive catcher. Yeah, I think that it's tough to rank him if you were to rank the best catchers of all time. It's nearly impossible to put him ahead of Bench because of what Bench did offensively and defensively. Mm -hmm. But everyone else, I think, is fair game. Some of the Hall of Fame averages at catcher, these actually include uh, Deacon White, who just got in from the Veterans Committee as well. A Hall of Fame average uh, baseball reference war is 47-6. Piazza's at 56-1. Fangrass war, 54-3. Piazza's at 66-8. OPS plus the Hall of Fame average for the catchers, the 14 catchers in it is 120 piazza's at 143 runs created plus 120 hall of fame average for the catchers piazza again at 141 the average slash line 287 361 441 piazza 308 377 545 he destroys every number offensively if you're not looking at peds he's one of those guys where yeah he he is a terrible defensive catcher but he was so far and above offensively that i think you can make a reasonable case he's the second best catcher ever to play Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no again for me kurt schilling kurt schilling i got you covered yeah (laughs) 
Um, you know, uh, another guy like Sosa, I think he, I think it's going to be come down to how much I weigh um, the postseason in an era of when he had more opportunities to pitch in the postseason, how I'm going to look at his uh, stats. Cause he did play many seasons. Um, you know, I don't have all the numbers here. I don't have, um, I'm not, it's a, I'm not, you know, really going to crunch numbers here on, on, during this podcast, but, you know, obviously he was a, a dominant pitcher of his time. And um, as a postseason pitcher, he was off the charts. So I'm looking forward to diving into him because to me he's 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 on the bubble and not a slam dunk by any means. But um, I've got to dive into the numbers there. There's a lot of things to look at. Let me give you some numbers with Schilling. I uh, I feel like Schilling is one of those guys where you know I hear people refer to him as borderline and on the bubble. And look, Schilling's one of those guys too. If we talk about off the field issues, he's literally being charged with fraud. So if you're looking at character clauses, does this factor into people's decision making? It'll be interesting to see. I think it actually will with some of the Boston-based voters. I think that they may knock him for that. Oh really? Yeah, I don't know about that. But even though there's a opinions up and down. You know, everyone understands he has a strong personality, to put it mildly, and he runs <laughs> a lot of people the wrong way. I, I, I would, I would, I would hope, and knowing a lot of the voters here in Boston, I don't think I could be wrong, but I suspect no, no one's going to hold his personality against him. And also, this whole stuff with the uh, his post-playing career, I don't, you know, I look at that as far too complex to say that he was uh, guilty of fraud, even though. You know, there's a obviously a lot of strong egos there between politicians and ex ex baseball players. So complicated. The game has changed so much from the early 20th century and from the late 1800s when you know Pud Galvin was pitching 600 innings a year and striking out 200 batters. Yeah. Uh, the game I don't really find it relevant to compare modern pitchers to anyone of that era or use averages from anyone of that era. I look at pitchers who started their career from 1942 and up. And that's 19 pitchers. Um, it's Seaver, Necro, Blylevin, Perry, Spawn, Carlton, Gibson, Ryan, Jenkins, Roberts, Palmer, Sutton, Marischal, Drysdale, Bunning, Ford, Kofax, Lemon, and Hunter. Uh, I think that's a pretty good group when you look at the averages of those uh, pitchers to gauge modern pitchers too. It's how I would gauge Clemens, Schilling, even someone like Jack Morris. So those are the standards I'll use with Kurt Schilling. Some of his numbers against that group, I don't put too much value into wins, but the average win total of that group is 272 and Schilling's at 216, so that he does fall below there. The win percentage of that group is 582 and Schilling's at 597. The average strikeouts of that group is 2,968. Schilling's at 3,116. The average ERA plus of that group is 119. Schilling's at 127. So even though he falls below the raw number of ERA, which the average of that group is 311, Schilling's at 346. The ERA plus is a much better number to look at. FIP of that group is 324. Schilling's at 323. However, the FIP minus, Schilling is at 74. The group is at 89. You want that to be the lower number, so Schilling is significantly lower. Whip the average of that group 1.18, Schilling's at 1.13. OPS plus against, the average of that group is 85, Schilling is at 77. The average of that group on uh, Baseball Reference War is 69, Schilling is at 76.9. The average Fangraphs War is 78.4, Schilling is at 86.1. Strikeouts per nine of the Hall of Fame group is 6.25, Schilling is at 8.60. Strikeout per walks of the Hall of Fame group 2.38, Schilling is at 4.0. Three, eight. And all that's exclusive of 
postseason, right? Postseason, not included. I think also one stat I looked at over the weekend, um, I don't know how much you hold to the uh, similarity scores that baseball reference does based on the Bill James. I think the guy who, whose career cl- most closely matches Kurt, Schilling, or Kurt Schilling's is uh, Kevin Brown, who I do not consider a Hall of Fame pitcher. But, you know, there's some variations in there, and uh, but they have not dissimilar final numbers. I actually think Brown is deserving, but we don't, I, don't, I don't want to spend too much time focusing on Kevin Brown. My problem with the similarity scores as they are now is that they're still based on old-school traditional numbers. Wins above replacement and quality start percentage are not factored into there at all. It's still based on wins and strikeouts and, and counting numbers like that. I think when you look at overall value, uh, Schilling was, was better than Brown, even though I do think that Brown is deserving oh, yeah. as, I think as well. Was, I think he was much better, too. And then you factor in the postseason where he was one of the best postseason pitchers that we've ever seen. I think that only helps his cause. Yeah. Yep. So fraud or not, he gets my vote. Yeah. (laughs) I don't care about fraud. Really. I don't. I think I'm leaning leaning towards him because, you know, I think uh, for a lot of the reasons, a lot of the numbers that you you, uh, have just mentioned, I'm leaning towards him, but I haven't made up my mind yet. Craig Biggio. Yeah, to me, there's not much... uh, I think he's he's got a great case. I, I agree. I, again, I don't see why someone would what what the big discussion is with him. I mean, he's not a Bonds type of impact player. He played in the small market, and not a lot of people, certainly in um, Boston, ever uh, were that familiar with him. But he was a great player, and. Um, there you go. There are plenty of advanced numbers that suggest that, that BJ was deserving, but I think you can even look at it like this. Everyone who is not associated with gambling or steroids who has 3,000 hits is in the Hall of Fame. Biggio is associated with neither. Why would he be the exception? Exactly. There's a, what's the blemish? What, what's, I have yet to hear a good case for why Biggio should not be in the Hall of Fame. I don't and think what he's going to he get not in. not do well? You don't think he'll get in? I, don't, I actually think we're going to have a year where no one gets in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I mean, I think the, the historical trend for a guy like Jack Morris, who I don't, who will not get my vote, but was at 66% last year? I don't know. I, I think there's some, probably some momentum, that's, I don't, which I do not understand, but there might be some momentum gathering Jack Morris's way. Who has a fantastic mustache, but other than that, I just don't get it. He has I a agree. Good career, really good career. That's it. Not great. That's right. And look, we've come to a point now where saying someone isn't a Hall of Famer is insulting. Okay. There's no – Jack Morris was a very good pitcher. If you have a prospect in your farm system right now that turns out to have the career that Jack Morris did, your front office would be doing backflips. They would be so excited to draft Jack Morris right now. Right. He was a very good pitcher who pitched on very good teams. Mm-hmm. He, was, he pitched a lot of innings. He was durable. But he's nowhere near Hall of Fame level. And this is, this is one of the things that bothers me is that I want to remove Clemens from the conversation for a moment because he does have the PED thing attached to him. But I think even the people who are not voting for Clemens because of the PEDs acknowledge that Clemens is a better pitcher than Morris. What you're going to see is Jack Morris get about twice as many votes as Kurt Schilling. And that's where I say, really? What are you looking at that says Jack Morris is a Hall of Famer and Kurt Schilling is not? It's those kind of inconsistencies that I think people throw their hands up in the air and say, what is going on here? Well, you know, I mean, we're to just step back and what we're talking about, I mean, the writers, even eight, ten years ago, were not looking at all these numbers that you and I look at now. 
and it's just very hard to get them to change their their process, their voting process. It's just I think it's a something someone should do a study about the you know the aging mind and the psychology of it and open mindedness. Um, you know, it's there's a there's a lot of that going on, unfortunately. And I don't like the whenever I discuss Hall of Fame voting, I, I try to catch myself, and that way I don't tear down some peers and colleagues because it's kind of easy to do that. And I, I like these guys. A lot of guys who I know vote or feel differently than than I do, and it becomes almost personal. And um, because I mean, I have strong opinions about it too, but it's not my job to lobby them to change. I mean, I can only you know, on an annual basis, I'll write something about here's who I voted for and why. But, you know, I don't know if other writers read that or want to hear what Michael Silverman has to say. Uh, they all do it their own way, and they all think that they're doing it the right way. And, um, you know, it's a touchy thing because the voters all know each other, and, you know, everyone's pretty strong-willed in this industry. And it's just a funny dynamic that goes on. That's kind of the tangent I'm going off on, which is, the psychology of, of the voter and, and how they react and, and adapt to the changing um, tools you have to, to gauge a guy's Hall of Fame career. And one of them is advanced sabermetrics, which I, I frankly, I embrace. And I think that they're really, really helpful to help you um, to judge a guy's career, how he stacks up against his peers at the time and also other, other uh, Hall of Famers. So. Well, you mentioned earlier that you think all the votes should be made public, and I agree with that. The other thing that I would add on to that is that I think all of the votes should be accompanied by a written explanation as to why you made that decision. No one's asking for a full biography of a player, but just, you know, tell me what players you compared him to that are in the Hall of Fame, who amongst his contemporaries you compared him to, and what numbers you looked at. I think that way it's like, well, I may disagree with the decision. I mean, who's going to, where's that going to be published? On the Hall of Fame website. And so you're going to chase down poor 80-year-old former cartoonist of, uh, you know, some, <laughs> you know, some guy who fills out his ballot every year, and you're going to be chasing him down every year. And it's like, if you don't submit this writing, you know, you're going to get a 10-word response because I felt like it. I saw him play, or I didn't see this guy play. He's a fraud. No. To be honest with you, Michael, if I were in charge of the voting process, that 80-year-old cartoonist who used to cover baseball 40 years ago would no longer be voting. Yeah, well, you know, that's, I, I think it's, <laughs> I like the fact that they're still in there. I really do. It's not, it, it skews the voting and um, it's messed up, but it, it adds some charm to it, don't you think? Here's another thing, and this is one of the things that drives me crazy. Obviously, I have numbers in front of me, and I know that you like numbers as well. But I feel like the thing that comes up a lot, and you hear, you see people write this, is the sniff test. Player doesn't pass the sniff test. Mm-hmm. And that drives me crazy, and this is what Jack Morris is. Jack Morris is an example of the sniff test gone wrong. Because even Morris's conventional numbers, if you just look at Morris's wins, ERA, strikeouts, and innings pitched, he's not a Hall of Famer. The more detailed you look into Morris, he's not a Hall of Famer at all. And this was interesting because a few years ago, Burt Blylevin got in, and Burt Blylevin is very deserving. Blylevin is also an example of the sniff test gone wrong because people are just like, oh, he's not that good. But if, even if you just look at his conventional numbers, his wins, his ERA, and his strikeouts, Blylevin is deserving. And then you look at his advanced numbers, he's even more deserving. They show how good he really was. Right. Both I, cases are just yeah. an example of the sniff test gone wrong. Yeah, that, that, that's a good argument, but... Don't. I mean, I think there is room for the sniff test, 
But if that's your sole criterion, <laughs> then then obviously your your snifter is out of is that, that's just wrong. It should be yeah yeah. He doesn't he doesn't pass my sniff test. But when I looked further deeper into the numbers, he did. You know, so it's a very subjective term, and there is some subjectivity to a Hall of Fame vote. You can't. It has to. There has to be some. It's sure. like uh, the call the strike zone of an umpire until they fully, uh, you know, roboticize it and em- employ advanced laser technology, which we all know is not going to happen. There's going to be some subjectivity to the even the strike zone, and they keep trying to improve it and refine it, but they're, they're never going to make it perfect. Of course, there's subjectivity, and and the sniff test works just fine with all-time greats. You know, look, let's remove Bonds and Clemens from the equation for a second because of PDs. Next year, Greg Maddox is on the ballot. What does the sniff test tell you about Greg Maddox? Yeah, he's in. And you know what? The sniff test is right. And what does the sniff test tell you about Tony Womack, who appeared on the ballot? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a different topic. <laughs> But the sniff test is right there, too. The sniff test can tell you when a player is obviously deserving. It can tell you when someone is obviously is not. I feel like the in-between is where people should perhaps consider more, more than just the sniff test. Exactly. Yeah. No, I agree with you, but they do not. Before we uh, move on to some of the holdovers, there were a couple other new guys on the ballot this year that aren't going to get as much attention. One, I think, is fair that he'll fall off the ballot. The other I actually would vote for, and I think this might surprise you, is Kenny Lofton. Okay. I mean, you'd have to make the case for me why, because I, I'm sure I'm, there's a lot of numbers there that are good, but, um, I mean, was he an impact player? A guy that <laughs> passed my sniff test? No. <laughs> Lofton See, doesn't you pass your sniff I mean, test. Like, did Kenny, yeah, he was a very good player, and he, posted, he had a long career and posted some good numbers, but in my mind, not a great player. Really Part- good player. But go ahead, make your case. Well, I'll say this, that I think Lofton is borderline, so that there is, a, I think, a fair case against him, just as there is a fair case for him. Um, one of the things that, I, to me, helps Lofton's cause is that modern center fielders are underrepresented in the Hall of Fame. Oh, that has no bearing on my, uh, how I approach the vote, but go ahead. You don't think that's important? You don't think that... that well, um, if an didn't necessarily have a great Hall of Fame-worthy center fielder, then that's the way the cookie crumbled. I mean, well, I don't know why, why that... Uh, that's never entered, crossed my mind, actually. There are 17 center fielders enshrined in the Hall of Fame because of their MLB playing career. Eleven started their career prior to 1945. Eight of those guys began before 1925. That's an uh, uneven distribution of players. It, and it bothers me. It couldn't bother me less. Okay. <laughs> well, obviously, that's not going to help my cause. Here's okay. one thing. The average Hall of Fame center fielder, 17 of them, has a baseball reference war of 63.3. Kenny Lofton is at 64.9. The average Hall of Fame center fielder, according to UZR, saved 28 runs over their career. Kenny Lofton saved 114. Mm. <laughs> not, not impressed. <laughs> Sorry. Still not uh, impressed. He's a really good player. I, the, everything you're saying you know, jives with what I recall, and he's a, a very good player. That's it. Not a Hall of Famer. Come on, Kenny Lofton. This is also a case where Kenny Lofton, much of his value comes from defense and speed. Uh-huh. And when you look at his offensive numbers, he falls short. This is in part where we need to take the era he played in into context. He played at a time when outfielders were behemoths, including many of his former teammates, where outfielders were slugging the ball at record rates, home runs were flying out of the park, steroids weren't the only reason, but it was at least part of the reason. And for all we know, Lofton might have used two. 
I, I suspect he didn't. He's one of those guys that my sniff test tells me that Kenny Lofton didn't use. I think Kenny Lofton was overshadowed by players that were juicing, and that's not his fault. His game is based on speed and defense, and there are guys like that who are in the Hall of Fame. I think he just happened to be born in the wrong year. Yeah, well, I would use your argument for, um, I assume, I'm going to guess you feel strongly about Tim Raines as well. Yes, he should be in. I mean, he has my vote. I mean, he's not a center fielder, mainly a left fielder, but still. He played in the shadow of Ricky Henderson, but again, has a, a... ultra-strong case as far as I'm concerned as an impact player and base stealer and on-base guy yep. and all-around guy who, who should be in there. And if you, you, know, you know how I feel. I don't know if you would have to rank them, but I, I hope Tim Raines is, is more deserving than Kenny Lofton. He certainly is, and I told you I would vote for 14 people. Lofton is probably 14 on that list. I would, I would have an interesting debate between Lofton and Sosa, actually. Tim Raines would be about seven or maybe even six. I actually just wrote a piece last night, and I compared Tim Raines' career to Tony Gwynn, Andre Dawson, and Dave Winfield. So corner outfield Hall of Fame contemporaries. And I think that uh, Tony Gwynn was better than Raines, but not by much, not as much as you would think. And I think Raines was better than both Dawson and Winfield. Right. I didn't vote for Dawson, and um, I would have voted for Winfield and obviously Tony Gwynn. But... um, yeah, I think Reigns, uh, the Tony Gwynn comparison is really helpful, I think. I think, so anyway, there's a strong case to be made for Tim Reigns. Well, and the interesting thing with Tony Gwynn, Tony Gwynn got in with like 97% of the vote, and Tony Gwynn's batting average is 338, but his on-base percentage is 388. Uh, so obviously he dwarfs Reigns in batting average. Reigns' batting average is 294, but his on-base percentage is 385. 388 to 385 is really not that big of a difference at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. No, no argument. One other new guy coming on the ballot this year who I don't think is deserving. I think he'll fall off right away. I think Lofton will fall off right away. I, I just think that's unfortunate. I think he deserves better than that. But David Wells, any consideration with him? Uh, no, no. It, you know who his it, career it, resembles? Uh, Jack Morris. Jack Well, there you go. Interesting to see, though, how two comparable players, one is going to get 70% of the vote or possibly get in, and one's going to get 1% and fall off his first year on it. Some of the holdovers, Mark McGuire, you mentioned you had voted, had voted for him in the past. Will you continue to vote for him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, although I have to admit that um, I still haven't seen the interview. I think it was with Dan Patrick. I think he, he said something about how if he were a voter, he wouldn't vote for himself. Yeah, he said based on the current criteria, he would not. Oh, based on, okay. I need to get a transcript of that. That kind of got under my skin. Um, I don't think it's going to change my mind, but that kind of bothers me. But uh, he'll still forget my vote. How about Rafael Palmero? The numbers are so good, and then I look at his... Uh, the short answer is no, because I don't think... I don't want to compare him to Kenny Lofton, but he was a really good... <laughs> he's a better player than Kenny Lofton. You think so? I bet I yeah. could make a case for Lofton, but go ahead. But um, he just wasn't... Great, and I saw a lot of his well, the second half of his career in person, and he always seemed to change the outcome of the games. But um, I know there's a lot more to my vote than games I saw Rafael Palmeiro play. But you know, kind of on the cusp. Uh, I mean, a, a bubble guy, but I don't think he's going to make the cut. In my cut, does it factor into your equation at all with Palmeiro that he actually tested positive in an era when there actually became testing when baseball decided to get more serious about PED use and PED testing? Does nah. his positive test do anything to your thinking? Nah, it doesn't. 
I would vote for him, but I, I think I see him as borderline as well. Of the 14 that I would vote for, I, I see three as borderline, Lofton, Sosa, and Palmero. The other 11, I think, all meet or exceed standards. And uh, one of those guys next is Jeff Bagwell. Oh, yeah. He's got my vote. He had a um, – what year is this for him? It's his third year. He got my vote from year one. Every guy I've mentioned, so far I've yet to drop to stop voting for a guy. So um, either I'm incredibly stubborn or just I'm consistent. So Jeff Bagwell, definitely – the case with Jeff Bagwell, his numbers are he exceeds Hall of Fame standards in most numbers, both traditional and advanced metrics for first baseman, even the overall averages as well. If I were Jeff Idelson, the exclusion of Jeff Bagwell would bother me most because of the complete lack of evidence. And there's nothing but suspicions around him. Right. And it's entirely possible that Jeff Bagwell used, but that he's being kept out of the Hall of Fame on mere suspicions. And this is the same is going to happen to Mike Piazza here as well. This is a problem. Um yeah, I mean, I think eventually the tide is going to turn on these guys, Ross. Um, do you really? I do, but I, I think it's going to take a long time. But, you know, not the full 15 years. But I think I think within five to ten years there's going to be, um, I think a, I think it's going to shift. I, what's, I, what's going to be the change that changes the... I think as more and more, I just think the changing electorate, and I think there's just going to be a greater acknowledgement that to be selective about our our usage of uh, PED use and how we apply it to Hall of Fame vote will uh, will start to change. I don't have a lot to base that on. I have no sabermetrics to rely upon, just a hunch. Do you think that there's people in the Hall of Fame that have used steroids? Oh, yeah, I do. I do, too. And uh, that's, that's another thing that bothers me. Yeah, I, I, I honestly do. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and accuse someone of it, but you look at some guys with very you know, durable careers or some spikes in their careers or, you know, why, I have no reason to believe that these guys pass some kind of a, were a pure morality than anyone else. So we kind of hold them to that standard, but I don't know why we do. Only seven Hall of Famers who started their career in the 80s are in the Hall of Fame. Two of those started in the late 80s, Roberto Almar and Barry Larkin. I don't know what those guys did. How do the voters know? That's right. It's one of those things, too, where it's just uh, it does create a messy circumstance when you start doing that stuff. I, I think one of the things that could turn the tide is seeing a guy who's in the Hall of Fame come out and admit that he used. There's no real incentive for anyone to do that, but if someone, if it's clear that, all right, people who use steroids are already in the Hall of Fame, and I do think that Bonds and Clemens might get in eventually, people might say, all right, these guys are in, let's just put them in now. Mm-hmm. I hope that does happen, not just because, I, I think just for, it would be good, uh, a cleansing thing for the game to undergo, um, but I don't think it's going to happen, but like I said earlier, I mean, there's just so many secret keepers right now in the game and uh there's people in the hall of fame i think who hold those secrets either about their own career or they know other people that if they're really honest with themselves you know either they're totally ashamed of it and feel like a lot of older voters do or about PED use that there's just no there should be no intersection no carryover into the hall of fame or they realize that you know we can't just paint the whole sport as, you know, corrupt and, and not, non-deserving of a Hall of Fame career. 
This is bad for the Hall of Fame, too. In the end, when you ignore a generation, or most of a generation of players, you ignore a generation of fans. And I think you really need to think about, or the writers need to think about, what are you really accomplishing by keeping them out? What is being accomplished by having a Hall of Fame where Mark McGuire isn't in it? What's the grand scheme here? What, what's the goal? What yeah, is the... rewarded? Is it right. Your, is it the conscience of the voter? Is it, does he feel good about himself or herself in the rare example? Or is it serving some grander elusive point that I can't really comprehend? Michael, quickly, let's move on to a few notable, a few other notable holdovers. Alan Trammell, does he get your vote? You know, he never has, and he's the one guy that kind of uh, nags at me. Whether I'm, I think I know there's some people who've, who've bugged me that I need to relook at his, reexamine his career. But um, I don't know. I just, uh, <laughs> I have a feeling you're about to say he's a he's a lock, right? I told you I would vote for 14, and three of those guys are borderline, yeah. Sosa, Palmero, and Lofton. I don't, uh, I don't even see Trammell as borderline. The Hall of Fame shortstops, who are his contemporaries, Cal Ripken, Robin Yount, Barry Larkin, and Ozzie Smith. Let's throw Ripken out. He wasn't as good as Ripken. Ripken was a better defensive player and a better offensive player. You can make a reasonable case that Ripken is the best shortstop to ever play. You can't make that case with Trammell. I think looking at the other guy's numbers... Is fascinating, and I think it's possible that Robin Yount was better than than Trammell. I think it's possible that Larkin was better than Trammell. Ozzie Smith is a really interesting case. One thing we know about Ozzie and Trammell is that Ozzie was a better defensive player than Trammell, even though Trammell was still very good defensively. Trammell was a much better hitter than Ozzie. Their career wins above replacements are almost identical. Uh, Trammell's at 67-1. Ozzie's at 73, so Ozzie does have a little bit of an advantage there. It's possible that he was the fourth best player of that group, but he's right there. The difference between Yount, Larkin, and Smith, I think you can put any of those guys and Trammell in any order you want. I I can see one day, I don't think it'll be this year, revisiting uh, Alan Trammell. But I, again, it, it's I, I don't want to be, I, I got to keep an open mind, but you know, was he a great player? I don't know. He had a, uh, I don't want to throw Rafael Palmeiro in the same group as Trammell, but was he such an impact player? I, I mean, I don't think Palmeiro was, was, was Alan Trammell. I know he had, at the end of his career, he, he was. There are 22 shortstops who are in the Hall of Fame because of their Major League Baseball playing career. Tremble meets the averages almost exactly. It's kind of interesting to see. The average slash line so for those 22 Hall of Famers, 286. Tremble's a 285 batting average. On base percentage, 355. Tremble's at 352. Slugging percentage, 401. Trammell's at 415. So the Hall of Fame average OPS is 757. Trammell's at 767. That's an OPS plus the Hall of Fame average of 108. Trammell's at 110. Other more traditional numbers, total bases, the Hall of Fame average is 3,294. Trammell's at 3,442. Runs, the Hall of Fame average is 1231. Trammell, 1231. He meets the Hall of Fame averages almost exactly and exceeds them in some areas. He falls slightly below in some areas. But, you know, key numbers, OPS plus, runs created plus, wins above replacement. Oh, the Hall of Fame average uh, among the 22 shortstops is uh, wins above replacement on baseball reference, 61.6. Trammell's at 67.9. Yeah, I mean, there's I, – I hear what you're saying. How about Larry Walker? No. No. Because of the advantage, of course. That's a, that's a lot of it. I, I, I thought he was a really good player. Again, I, I, I'm not, I guess I'm not. Uh, I think it's been a couple of years that I've, uh, you know, examined his case, I, and um, I, I didn't think he met the standard. He's really good, a close guy, close, close bubble guy, but not quite there. How about Edgar Martinez? Yes, 
Yeah. You do vote for Edgar. I did. I have since the beginning. Why do you think he hasn't got in? I think there's a bias against the DH. I think people downgrade it severely. While I think, yeah, it's kind of like a closer. You got to be really careful who you select. But um, I think a DH, he was the first great DH. And his numbers are incredible. And to me, it's not that difficult of a vote. I mean, you can't slight the guy for playing within the rules of that position that the Lords of Baseball created and the union as well. And it's still going to, it's going to be around for a long time. So, um, I, I, there's no one else like Edgar Martinez as a, as a DH. So in my mind, that's why he, he belongs. The DH is a position. I, I think that, you know, to hold it against him because he played DH is, is a mistake. He's the best DH of all time. And frankly, it's not even close. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, don't understand that mindset. But again, we're, you're going into mindsets and biases. Um, I'm not comparing an outlook on the DHs, an outlook on PED use, but I think there's some more similarities than a lot of voters would care to admit. We hit on Jack Morris earlier, three other holdovers that do get some consideration, Lee Smith, Dale Murphy, Don Mattingly. No, Any of those no, guys? No. Uh-uh. I, I agree on all three. So, Michael, by my count, that gives you nine guys you're voting for. Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Mike Piazza, Kurt Schilling, Craig Biggio, McGuire, Jeff Bagwell, Tim Raines, and Edgar Martinez. Yeah, well, I'm still not 100% sold on, on Schilling. Okay, Schilling's a maybe, and Sosa's a maybe, too. Right. The tone I got is that you're. The, I think you're leaning towards yes with Schilling and no with Sosa. Yeah, leaning, but I haven't uh, toppled over yet in his direction. Okay. <laughs> well, very good, Michael Silverman. Michael, as, just as a quick note, when you get your Hall of Fame packet, what kind of information does the Hall of Fame provide? <laughs> it's hilarious. I wish I had it in front of me, but for some reason my ballot hasn't actually arrived in the mail yet. It's almost from the 1950s. It's kind of a, a mimeograph look and feel to it. It's a, a list of the entire – okay, there's an actual ballot page where you have, what is it, 15, 20 guys, and there's a little uh, square next to each guy. And it looks like each name has kind of been typed out and includes the, uh, the, what you're supposed to look for. And, you know, you sign your name on the bottom and please submit it by – I think it's December 31st. And inside – and there's a self-addressed stamp sealed envelope, which is nice – and then there's a like a, a staple together front and back about four pages with you know the names of each player and um, oh, I really wish I had an example and it'd just be about five or six densely packed lines of led the Amer- like Jack Morris led the American League and you know wins I don't think that is the case that's a bad example but um, you know his postseason record or you know, pitch blank number of game sevens deciding games of the World Series. Just like unrelated, no comparisons, just a, uh, a conglomeration of dot, dot, dot kind of stats that go on for three or four lines and it's the next person. So there's no okay. context. There's no, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hilarious. There's none of the stuff that you have, obviously, which would be really nice. Um, it's it's not charming, really. It's not quaint. It's... it's um, it's one of those areas that I wish the uh, the Baseball Hall of Famer, you know, that's on, I think, the baseball writers, really. I guess, I think we'll, the, there's room for um, an update. There's a definite need for an upgrade in, term, in terms of how it's presented to us. Are there any sabermetric numbers that are included, or is it just, here's his batting average, here's his wins? I'm trying to think. No, I, I doubt the, the 
war has ever been included on any of those. I doubt. I think OBP and uh, probably <laughs> there might have been the random use of OPS. I don't know. I okay. Really have to <laughs> um, okay, but OPS is a step in the right direction. You would think so. Yeah. So it's it's. Uh, I think a lot of the listeners would be uh, um, pretty surprised and bothered by it. So, Michael, do you think anyone will actually get in? You mentioned Jack Morris earlier. Do you think any of the uh, – you think Clemens, Bonds, do you think Biggio, Bagwell, Piazza, do you think anyone will get in this year? You know, I hadn't really thought about no one getting in. I, I, honestly, I don't really think about that too much. But um, I do think uh, – I think uh, if anyone, Jack Morris, and otherwise probably nobody. I'm, I can't wait to see what uh, Bonds and Clemens get. Michael, finish this sentence. A Hall of Fame with Jim Rice and Jack Morris and without Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens is what? Is, um, is to be expected. It's <laughs> 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 not surprising these days. I mean, is it credible? I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say it's a shame or, you know, we all have. You know, I think you know how I feel about this stuff. I've tried to outline my thinking as clearly as possible, but in the end, it comes down to what the majority of people feel, and we—you can tell by the vote totals and how people, you know, from all the opinions that are out there—that you know, you and I are, are are in the minority. So it's not surprising to me that you have uh, those guys in, and other guys who will be kept out. Do you think it's credible? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's a flawed system, but um, I'm not going to – I don't waste a lot of time thinking, well, okay, we got to replace it and I'll be a Hall of Fame crusader. I'm, I'm just – got other things to do. So it's what, a, bit, a bit like democracy. It's a flawed, but what else have you got? You've been listening to Michael Silverman. Read Michael's work in the Boston Herald and follow him on Twitter at MikeSilvermanBB. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you, Ross. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks again to Michael Silverman for taking the time and a lot of it to join the podcast today. I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as well. I think it was an interesting look inside the voting process and some of the decision-making process behind one voter. Uh, I hope to do more of these, hope to have more writers on. They can talk about their ballot as well. I've known Michael for many years. I used to have him on the radio all the time when I was producing in Boston, and uh, we've done fantasy baseball together for several years. Michael's a good guy. I really appreciate him taking the time to join the podcast today. Again, read his stuff in the Boston Herald and on bostonherald.com. Give him a follow on Twitter at MikeSilvermanBB. That's just about going to do it for this episode of the Replacement Level Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Ross Carey. I'll have a new episode up soon.